Part one, chapter three of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording, or LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Seventeen eighty three to seventeen eighty six visits to Languedoc. In the month of November seventeen eighty three, I learned that my grandmother would accompany my uncle the Archbishop to the meeting of the States of Languedoc. This news caused me great joy at this time the annual session of the states was a very brilliant occasion peace had just been concluded and the english deprived for three years of the possibility of travelling on the continent came over in crowds as they did later in eighteen fourteen at that time people did not travel so much in italy the fine roads by montseigneur and the Simplon, and the magnificent route by the corniche constructed during the reign of napoleon were not then in existence the climate of the south of france especially that of languedoc and montpellier was very attractive the thought of this journey practically the first i had ever taken filled me with joy i will relate here once for all how we made the trip to montpellier as we went there every year until seventeen eighty six when i made my last visit we set out in a large berlin with six horses my uncle and grandmother were seated in the back with myself and the secretary of my uncle facing them and two domestics upon the box seat in front the second berlin also with six horses carried our two maids and two valets with two servants upon the box seat a chaise de poste brought the maitre d'hotel and the chef there were also three couriers one of whom went half an hour ahead while the other two accompanied the carriages monsieur combe my instructor left several days before us by diligence every year the ministers kept my great-uncle so long at versailles they had hardly sufficient time to arrive at montpellier by the day fixed for the opening of the states the session could not commence until the archbishop of narbonne who was president ex officio was present the delay caused by the ministers obliged us to travel as fast as possible a very disagreeable necessity at this advanced season of the year as we needed eighteen horses the order of the administration des postes preceded us by several days in order that the horses might be ready we made very long daily trips setting out at four o'clock in the morning we stopped only for dinner the chaise de poste and the first courier had preceded us by an hour this arrangement permitted us to find the table ready the fires lighted and several good dishes prepared by our chef when we arrived the chef carried with him from paris in his carriage bottles of soup and sauces all prepared and everything that was necessary to make palatable the bad meals which we found at the hotels as soon as we arrived the chaise de poste and the first courier set out so that when we halted for the night we found everything ready for us the same as at noon at that time the route which followed the course of the rhone as far as pont saint esprit was in such bad order that you ran the risk of being overturned at every moment at la Palou we entered the territory of the comte venaissin which belonged to the pope it gave me great pleasure to see the 
guide-post upon which was painted the tiara and the keys, I felt as though we were entering Italy. We left the highway to Marseille and followed an excellent road which the papal government had permitted the states of Languedoc to construct and which led directly to Pont Saint-Esprit. At La Palou, my uncle changed his costume. He put on a wadded costume of violet cloth lined with silk of the same colour, silk stockings, also violet in colour, shoes with gold buckles, his cordon bleu, and a three-cornered priest's hat ornamented with gold tassels. As soon as the carriage had passed the last arch of the bridge at Pont Saint-Esprit, the cannon of the little citadel at the bridge head fired twenty-one shots. The drums beat a salute, the garrison came out, the officers in full dress, and all the civil and religious authorities presented themselves at the door of the Berlin. If it was not raining, my uncle descended while they attached the eight horses destined for his carriage. He listened to the harangues which they addressed to him, and replied with affability and incomparable grace. He was very tall, with a noble face, and a voice and air at the same time gracious and assured. He asked for information regarding everything which might interest the inhabitants, listened to the petitions which were addressed to him, and the following year he still remembered the requests which had been made of him the preceding year. All this lasted about a quarter of an hour, after which we set out like the wind, for not only had the postilions been doubled, but the honour of conducting the carriage of so great a personage was warmly appreciated. In the eyes of the inhabitants of Languedoc, the President of the States was a much greater man than the King. My uncle was extremely popular. Although he was very haughty, his arrogance was never shown except to those who were, or who thought they were, his superiors. We spent the night at Nîmes, where my uncle always had business. One year we spent several days with the Archbishop, which gave me the time to see the antiquities, although the monuments were not as well cared for as at present. They had just commenced to clear up the RN, and had brought to light several new inscriptions. Finally, we arrived at Montpellier. After having travelled one hundred and sixty leagues of detestable roads, after having crossed torrents without bridges where you ran the risk of your life, at last we arrived at a route as fine as that of a well-kept estate. We crossed superb bridges perfectly constructed. We traversed cities flourishing with industry and a country which was well cultivated. The contrast was very striking. The house in which we lived at Montpellier was large and beautiful, but very dismal. It was situated in a narrow and sombre street. My uncle rented it all furnished. The apartment which he occupied on the first floor contained many fine Turkish rugs, which were common in Languedoc at that time. The house surrounded the four sides of a square court, one side of which was taken up by the large dining-room, another by a salon of the same dimensions with six windows, which was hung and furnished in fine crimson damask, with an immense chimney of very ancient design, which to-day would be much admired. 
my grandmother and i occupied the lower floor which was dark even at three o'clock in the afternoon we never saw my uncle in the morning we took breakfast at nine o'clock after which i went out for a walk with my english maid at three o'clock precisely it was necessary to be dressed and ready for dinner we ascended to the salon where we found fifty guests assembled every day except friday saturday my uncle always dined abroad either with the bishop or with some great personage of the states there were never any ladies present at dinner except my grandmother and myself between us were placed the guests most highly regarded when there were any strangers especially english they were seated at my side at that time every person who had a presentable domestic was served by him at table neither carafes nor glasses were placed upon the table at the large dinners there were placed upon the buffet silver buckets containing bottles of wine and a glass stand with a dozen glasses and any one who wished a glass of wine of any kind sent his servant to obtain it i had a servant attached to my person who was at the same time my coiffeur he wore my livery which we were obliged to have in red although in england it was blue because our stripes were exactly the same as those of the house of bourbon if our costumes had been blue our livery would have been exactly the same as the king's which was not allowed after dinner which never lasted more than one hour we returned to the salon which was filled with members of the states who had come for coffee nobody sat down and at the end of a half hour my grandmother and i descended to our apartment we then frequently went out to make visits in a chaise à porteur, which was the only means of transportation used in the streets of montpellier the fine quarter of the city which has been built since was not in existence at that epoch on our arrival at paris at the beginning of seventeen eighty four my father had returned from america he had been governor of saint christophe until peace had been declared after having surrendered the island to the english he had made a visit to martinique where he became strongly attached to the comtesse de la touche who was a widow at thirty years of an officer of the navy who had left her two children a boy and a girl she was very agreeable and very rich her mother madame de girardin was the sister of madame de la pagerie the mother of josephine later empress of the french at this time she had recently married her daughter to vicomte de Beauharnais, who had taken her with him to france madame de la touche had made her plans to go to france with her two children alexandre and betsy who was later duchesse de fitz james my father followed them to france and at this time people began to talk of their marriage on hearing the news my grandmother flew into a rage and nobody could calm her nevertheless it was very natural that my father should wish to marry again in the hope of having a son he was only thirty-three years of age and was propriétaire of one of the finest regiments of the army conducted to france by his grandfather arthur dillon this regiment had never changed its name like the other regiments of the irish brigade without doubt it would have been better if he had chosen for his new wife the daughter of one of the titled catholic families of england but he did not like the english 
and he did love Madame de la Touche, of a very sweet and amiable character, though feeble. She had the careless and easy-going ways of the Creoles. The marriage took place in spite of my grandmother, who made a great fuss. My father wished to have me presented to my stepmother, but he gave up the idea on account of the opposition of my grandmother. She declared that if I ever went out of the house even for an hour to visit Madame Dillon, I should never come back. The only visit that I ever made to my stepmother was in 1786, when my father left to take the position of governor of the island of Tobago. My father was very much dissatisfied, because he had not been named governor of Martinique or of Saint-Domingue, as he had acquired the right to demand one or other of these two posts. During the war he had won the greatest distinction. His regiment had carried off the first success of the campaign by taking by assault the island of Grenade, of which the governor, Lord McCartney, was his prisoner. He had also powerfully contributed to the capture of the islands of Saint-Estache and Saint-Christophe. He was governor of this last-named island for two years. When he turned it over to the English at the time of the peace of 1783, the inhabitants gave him many evidences of their esteem and appreciation, of which the echoes reached even to England. My father received the most flattering evidences of this feeling at the time of his visit to England, on his return to Europe. My uncle the Archbishop, dominated and influenced by my grandmother, instead of lending his support to his nephew to aid him to obtain one of these two governorships of Martinique or Saint-Domingue, did not assist him in any way. My father, therefore, accepted the governorship of Tobago. Here he resided until he was elected deputy of Martinique to the States-General. He left France accompanied by his wife and my little sister Fanny, who later became the wife of General Bertrand. He also took with him as recorder of the island my instructor, Monsieur Combe. Before his departure, my father talked with my grandmother of a project which he wished strongly to see carried out. He had known at Martinique, during the war, a young man who was aide-de-camp to the Marquis de Bouy, whom the latter liked extremely, and whom my father also highly appreciated. My grandmother objected without giving the matter much consideration, although the young man was of high birth and would be the head of his house, under the pretext that he was a mauvais sujet, that he had many debts, and that he was small and homely. I was so young that my father did not insist. He sent my uncle the Archbishop a procuration which gave him the power to arrange my marriage when he judged that the time had arrived. However, I often thought of the parti whom my father had proposed and searched for information regarding the young man. My cousin Dominique Sheldon, brought up by my grandmother and who lived with us, knew him and often spoke to me of him. I learned that he had had indeed a very lively youth, and I made up my mind no longer to think of him. In 1785 our sojourn in Languedoc was much longer than usual. After the session of the States, 
we went to pass nearly a month at Arles with the amiable bishop, who was later Cardinal de Bosset of that city. This trip interested me very much. It was during this sojourn at Arles that I acquired my first love for the mountains. This little city, situated in a charming valley, surrounded by a beautiful prairie sprinkled with very old chestnut trees, is in the midst of the Cévennes. Every day we made some excursions which were really charming. The young people of the country had formed a mounted guard of honour for my uncle. They had adopted the English uniform of the Dillons, red with yellow facings. They all belonged to the best families of the country. To my great regret, we set out to pass two months at Narbonne, where I had never been. As I liked to be informed regarding all matters of interest in the places which I visited, I began to look up the histories of Narbonne from the time of Caesar to that of Cardinal de Richelieu, who had formerly occupied the archiepiscopal chateau, which was similar to a stronghold of the Middle Ages. From Narbonne we went to Toulouse, by way of Saint-Popoul, where we remained several days. From there we went to Bordeaux, where we made a visit of seventeen days with the Archbishop. I cannot say why Bordeaux interested me more than the other cities which we had visited. Here we saw Madame Dillon, mother of all those Dillons who have always pretended, but wrongly, to be our relatives. This lady, who was of good English family, had married an Irish merchant named Dillon, whose ancestors had probably come from that part of Ireland named, until the reign of Queen Elizabeth, Dillon's country, where a great number of the inhabitants, the same as in Scotland, took the name of their lord. However this may be, this Dillon had no success in business, and having raised a certain sum of money, came to establish himself at Bordeaux, where he entered into commerce. His wife was a woman of extraordinary beauty, well known throughout the province. Her husband died, leaving her with twelve children and very little fortune, but possessed of great charms and much courage. Maréchal de Richelieu befriended her and recommended her to my uncle at the time of one of his trips to Bordeaux. My uncle promised to look after her children and kept his word. The three eldest, who were rather beautiful girls, made very favourable marriages. The nine sons, who were without exception fine fellows, all had the most honourable careers. At Bordeaux, several days before my departure, my servant, when dressing my hair, asked my permission to go that evening to a chateau situated at a short distance to see some old comrades. He rejoined our carriages at the passage of the Dordogne at Cubsac, not far from the chateau which he had visited. I asked the name of the place, and he told me that it was called Le Buil, and it belonged to the Comte de la Tour de Pin. His son was the young man whom my father had wished me to marry, and whom my grandmother had refused. I asked the servant regarding the position of the chateau, and learned with regret that it could not be seen from the highway. I was very much interested in crossing the river at Cubsac to learn that the land around belonged to Monsieur de la Tour du Pin, and I said to myself that perhaps I might some day be the lady of all this fine country. I took good care, however, 
not to communicate these reflections to my grandmother, who would not have received them with pleasure. Nevertheless, they remained in the back of my head. End of Part 1 Chapter 3